This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. episode 262 of the craft beer and brewing podcast and of course i'm in yakima washington for this episode uh, and we're sitting here at cls farms and joining me are uh, eric and claire demaray and alex noel welcome to the podcast hi Good to be here. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Alex is rejoining us on the podcast. She has been a guest before, and uh, but now she's working closely with CLS here. Uh, of course, we're at the multi-generational now CLS farm. Uh, we toured the, the hop fields today as they were picking. Uh, it was Comet they were picking earlier today. and We looked at some Medusa and some Vista and checked out some other uh, hops on the vine. And uh, we're in the middle of harvest right now. We're going to talk about uh, some of the dynamics that are happening this year in the world of hops. We're going to talk about uh, you know uh, everything from developing new varieties to sensory selection. Uh, you know how they are working on things like picking windows to optimize uh, flavor and aroma for brewers. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, you know things brewers should ought, you know ought to know about uh, the way that hops are grown and some of the impacts that those things have on flavor and aroma. Before we do that, for nearly 30 years, g Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. g stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. g also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers. With 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day? It's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com for more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. ProFill can fillers use rotary, true counterpressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email probrew at contactusatprobrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a ProMock brand. Of course, I'd like to thank Yakima Valley Tourism folks for helping make this visit possible. To plan your own trip to the Yakima Valley, start at visityakima.com. And of course, if you love beer, the Yakima Valley is a must-visit location. Uh, if you can't make it up for harvest this year, the Fresh Hop Festival in October is a special one, and there's no real parallel for it anywhere else in the world of beer. It's a fantastic opportunity to try uh, the, these beautiful fresh hop beers that uh, brewers are pulling and making right now. Uh, make time to visit. See where your beer is grown. Come on up here to Yakima. Uh, Demarais, let's talk about the history of this farm, CLS Farms. Uh, uh, Eric, uh, where did it all start, and uh, why don't you catch us up? Sure. Um, so for me, I'm fourth generation. My great-grandfather, um, al- along with, uh, we're mostly, a lot of the hop growers are of French-Canadian descent. And so they uh, came into Minnesota, spent some time there, and then many of them migrated out here uh, when the some of the land uh in their land deals in the late 1800s, you know, made it, uh, made it quite attractive for them to move out here. So they, uh, my great grandfather and some other family members came out in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 
uh, tried a few. I mean, they weren't hop growers at all. It wasn't that wasn't a thing. They tried tobacco. They tried a few different crops. And I think about 1906, they landed and tried hops and they went to hops because even back then it was a kind of a larger cash crop than some of the other crops. And so they landed. And even at that time, most of that was being grown in like New York state and that kind of yeah. upstate. And, uh, yep. but then we're having a lot of agricultural issues with, uh, you know, mildew yep. and exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and actually in Washington state, most of the hot production was in Western Washington. And that kind of started in the late eight, mid to late 1800s mm. as well and early 1900s. And so really in Washington state, um, in the early 19, 1906, like when they started, the vast majority of hot production was over on the west side, but very similar. The west side of the, the mountains. The west side, exactly. And for those who don't know, Yakima, we did tell everybody we live in Washington State, and they think it's like Seattle here, and we live in a desert. <laughs> we get yeah, less rainfall yeah. here than Las Vegas. So um, so they, 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 they tried it. It worked pretty well, and they kept going. And so, you know, really... As you mentioned, some of the mildews and the inability to deal with those uh, pests and diseases in the wetter parts of the United States really allowed hops to become centric here in the Yakima Valley. And so, you know, I think they, you know, I don't have a ton of family history, but I can just kind of see their progression. So they must have had some, the, two, the, the 1910s and 20s. And 30s had to be pretty good years because they were able to expand pretty significantly. And most of the hop growers in, in the Yakima Valley, not all, but many of them are of this French-Canadian descent. So they all kind of did the same pattern um, as well. So then my um, yep. grandfather. Peralts, Gamache. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. You can just go down the list and. You got and then, of course, you know, all the families have intermarried in those times. And now mm -hmm. you've got a very complex web of uh, family interactions here in the Valley. Yeah. And I think um, really like Claire's generation. So Claire's my daughter here. She that's probably the first generation that maybe hasn't like, um, you know, hasn't there was. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of there was some yeah. pressure, I guess, to marry you know, Mary kind of in that French Canadian zone and, and really actually it went all the way a little bit, even through my generation, but you know, not in Claire's. So that's the, <laughs> sure, so, sure, sure. the tree, the tree is getting wider now, <laughs> which is a good thing. Uh, you know, but it, it's, it's interesting that because, you know, this is, it's such a close community. And so even though, you know, farms are, you know, ostensibly on paper competitors with each other mm -hmm. in some sort of way. Farms also work together through, you know, either grower-owned co-ops, also mm -hmm. have these extended fam familial relationships, joint ventures everywhere throughout yeah. where, oh, you yeah. know, some are farming, some, you know, some own land, but are, you know, growing other, like, it gets a very uh, connected world of agriculture here and not, uh, you know, it, it's not a cutthroat, uh, you know, grower versus grower kind of environment. Every, everyone is, is very close. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I, I, I think craft brewers and brewers should never fear that we are very competitive with each other, sure, but sure. we are, we all know each other and many of us are related and I would equate it to like, uh, like a, pick up basketball game at the Y, you know, where you compete <laughs> sure, like crazy sure. and you want to, you want to beat them, but they're your buddies at the end of that. It's a little bit like that here. So 100%. So then you, you know, Claire is the 
with fifth generation? Yeah, fifth generation. Yep. Yeah, I came back to the farm in 2020 after graduating from the University of Portland and then started working full time and then went and got my master's at the same time. So, um, yeah, fifth generation CLS started. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about CLS, but. Well, we, you know, back before hop farms were cool, we had, uh, you know, no one put a lot of effort into the names so much. And so we would, you know, we were always trying to come up, you know, this was not contrived at all, but. So uh, CLS stands for Claire, which is the C, L is Lauren, and then S is my wife, Shelly. And so, but uh, we had a, uh, after the company was formed, we had a late in life baby called, named Vivian. And so Vivian didn't make it onto the name. She yet. did not. She did not. <laughs> She's had a beer named after her though. So oh, okay. one of the brewers in town named a beer after her. She used to pull these pranks on brewers for whenever they came through the farm. And so one of them named a beer called Vivi's Prank and... It was kind of her her way of getting a little bit of spotlight aside from, yeah, not quite yeah. making it into the name. <laughs> so anyway, that's where the name came from. Sure, so. sure. Now, you, you mentioned it, but you've seen some challenges over the years. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we are in this kind of uh, era of craft beer where things have just mostly gone up, you know, that mm-hmm. there have been some, you know, from, you know, 2011 to mm-hmm. or like the last decade of craft beer. Uh, you know, things have just generally been positive. Volumes have grown. I mean, you know, even the acreage of hops grown mm-hmm. here in Yakima uh, has skyrocketed. And, yep. you know, tens of thousands of new acres of, of hops uh, planted just over the last decade. I mean, it's a very significant uptick in the market. Um, but it hasn't always been like this. You've you've also mm-hmm. worked and, uh, and seen the farm through some more challenging times. Yeah, I mean, if you kind of look back, I mean... Really, the hop industry was kind of in about a 40-year secular decline, and from the 1960s, you know, as as they 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 internationally track the bittering units in beer, and that's a if you go to the Barth report, which is a really well-known statistical report, which I'd encourage everybody to read. Um, if you go to the Barth report, they have a long-term uh, track record of that, and. And the and the bittering units kept going down, 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 down as beers became lighter, lighter, lighter. Uh, and then the second thing that happened was hop varieties got much more efficient. They got much better at producing more alpha acid per acre, and sometimes on the order of three times more efficient. So you had that was a hit, and then you also had uh, the development of downstream products like ISO extract, uh, those kind of products that increase the efficiency in beer. So you really had it, even though the world is producing more beer, you had a need for less and less and less acres of hops. And so that was very pronounced in the, mostly in the eighties and nineties until their mid 2000s, maybe 2006, 2007. And so the up markets in, in the hot market were only short-lived, maybe a year. And, and then there was, it was relentlessly went back down to that kind of demand destruction model. And so that's a very difficult environment to exist in, even for well-established multi-generational players. And so I was kind of right at the cusp of that. You know, I graduated from college in 1991 you know, my parents did not really want me to come back to the farm and that and that's no fault of their own. I mean, it was, but it was something I wanted to do. And I was like, nope, I'm going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And so, so, you know, we came back and it was <clears throat> challenging through the nineties and very challenging up through 
about 2005, 2006, uh, the hop industry sh- shrunk dramatically from 1990, say, to, to uh, 2005, 2006. And there was very, it had gotten very thin at that point. And so, but a couple things happened, you know, life is funny. So there was in 2007 and eight, there was a crop disaster in Germany, some big fires, burnt some warehouses down and structurally the acreage had gotten so low that it created, you know, one of those short term cyclical uh, booms, like I was telling you. So we all knew it was a boom. We hit it, but it was the biggest boom we'd ever had. And so the prices did go to the moon. But, um, but we knew it was short, short term. And so we didn't have any expectation that it would, you know, last and it didn't last, but by 2012, 13 U S craft had gotten its sea legs and started making some pretty meaningful growth metrics. And, and most farms in Yakima Valley in 2010 would have been 80% alpha, 20% aroma. That's almost completely flipped now. So. That's, it's really fascinating to see how something like the growth of craft beer could so deeply, you know, impact the agriculture, mm-hmm. you know, and even, you know, what you're growing, how you're treating things, all of this. Let's talk a little bit more about that. But first, looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough, think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Hey Nano Brewers for Mentis, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts and flexible 100-gram packaging. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. So it's kind of fascinating to think that 2006, from 2006 to to, to now, you know, we're roughly 15, 16 years, um, a lot of like you're growing completely different varieties, uh, you know, oh, a, yeah. to a large degree <clears throat> mm-hmm. than what you might have been doing at that point. Yeah, I mean, really, in 2000, say 11, I'd create. I would say that would be the pivot point. Um, maybe we grew four or five varieties, and the dominant one would be CTZ for Alpha. Most growers grew some uh, Cascade as well, and a little bit of Willamette and Tetnanger for Anheuser Busch. But really, typically, a farm was maybe four or five varieties kind of kind of thing i think this year we're up to 27 now not all those are (laughs) not all those are like you know in commercial quantities necessarily but but yeah i mean i would say we have what we consider 13 or 14 core varieties now which is a huge change but a good change not a bad change so Uh, talk to me about the challenge of doing that i mean you know now you are having to like control a lot more moving pieces I mean, there's a lot more challenge and it also, you know, especially in this current environment of brewing and hops, you know, brewers are placing more and more demands on Mm -hmm. growers, you know, that, uh, I mean, that I guess would be the other piece that we can talk about that, um, you know, that older model of just, you know, focusing on alpha and trying to maximize that and, you know, picking when the alpha is as highest, like that's one way to, to go about this whole agricultural thing. 
but it's a whole different piece where you're also talking about finding that kind of those aromatic qualities and those that height of flavor. Um, it changes everything from from timing to the way that you all handle hops. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about some of the changes over even over the last five years of how you all have uh, kind of evolved based on that interaction with brewers. Yeah, I mean some of the some of the big one. I mean. You know, typically in the past, you would go harvest all of one variety, then move on to the next variety, then move on to the next variety. And, you know, at least what we do at CLS is we're bouncing all around. So like in the next 36 hours, we're going to be in three or four different varieties. And so, you know, that, but that's all determined by who uh, the buyer is, where we think the aroma is and and really, like here, the next 24 hours is going to be what I call Sierra Nevada Day because uh, <laughs> we're going to pick three varieties for Sierra Nevada that I think are exactly right in the window that they want. And so, and so we we really really highly focus on that here at CLS. So sure, Alex, from your perspective as a as someone who has been a very prominent brewer and is now working also here on on the the hop side, um, you know, what do you? How would you define some of the major changes that have happened over the last number of years? Um, what brewers have been pushing towards and how the farm has kind of answered the call from uh, from those brewer demands? I think the largest change would definitely be access to growers for communication, right? There's an open flow of conversation happening between brewers and hop growers so that, I mean, if you're not telling the grower what you're looking for. They're just making assumptions on what the brewer wants, and that isn't always correct. Plus, there's the variability from one brewer to another on what they're actually looking for in a single hops variety. So that would probably be the single largest thing is access to the farms. Over the years, though, I mean, we have new varieties coming out constantly, which is great. But as I mentioned before, there's variability in what a brewer is looking for in that variety. So understanding what you're looking for aromatically is going to lead that conversation with the grower. Uh, and now we have better access to the valley during harvest than, than we've ever had before. There are more small brewers coming through for harvest and having these conversations. Ten years ago, that wasn't a thing, right? And so, you know, that's how I established my relationship initially with CLS. It was coming to the farm and meeting Eric and having conversations about why I loved El Dorado and what I was looking for in that variety and built the relationship to the point where I could just like shoot a text over to Eric and he'd be like, this is not the Eldo you're looking for, right? Like you need Mm -hmm. to wait a few days and we'll be right in that sweet spot for you. And I mean, it's amazing to have that kind of access. So I implore people to, to just seek it out. Sure. Let's talk. I mean, what does that range look like? You know, there are, you know, if you're a a brewer that's buying spot hops, you know, you, you're going to get what, what you buy from the broker and, uh, you know, but it's also, you may not necessarily have a full knowledge of what that range of potential aroma and flavor might be. Um, you know, I know this is a bit abstract to talk about, but it isn't, it isn't. Right. right. But what does that range, say, look like for some of the varieties? And I imagine there are some varieties that may have more range than others. Absolutely. There are others that tend to, to kind of tightly focus. Talk to me about some of those with biggest range and what, you know, the kind of, you know, far ends of those look like. And then, you know, what varieties may have a tighter range where things are, you know, just generally more consistent? So on the wide variety um, of aromas, we can use Centennial as a really good example because 
early centennial can come through as like lemon and a little bit of grassiness, which tends to dry out into like a hay-like aroma. You let it hang a little bit longer and you're starting to see more development of citrus characteristics without any of the grass. It continues to hang and it moves into like cherry and red fruits and it almost ditches the lemon and still favors a little bit of like sweet orange, but you have a very different deep character of a later centennial. I mean, other varieties, Citra does it, Mosaic does it, Simcoe does it, where early Simcoe could be kind of light and citrusy and tangerine and then you let it hang and it starts to move into that caddy realm that a lot of brewers will look for. I think on the tighter spectrum of picking, cashmere is a hop that can shift pretty fast. You'll get a lot of strawberry and lime when it's really at its peak and some of that like sweet sort of strawberries and cream character, but you let it hang a little too long and it just falls on its face. So um, baby diaper is what some people have <laughs> yeah, mentioned yeah. to me. Baby diaper. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants that. No one wants that because really good cashmere <clears throat> just hits so well. Uh, but I think when it comes to even buying spot hops, I don't think it's outrageous to ask for a sample, especially oh, yeah. if you're buying a large quantity of a spot variety and also talk with the dealer about, who grew it when it was picked because mm -hmm. they have access to all of that data. It's just knowing about asking the right questions. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of those brewer, you know, brewer requests, you know, for, for picking windows and what that mean actually means, how that plays out within, you know, your kind of harvesting process, because you, this is, there are a lot of people involved in harvest. There are a lot of trucks. There's a lot of, you know, top cutters and bottom cutters. I mean, it's a major operation to get out there. And then you also have all sorts of concerns in terms of harvesting through a calendar where you absolutely need to balance the labor that you have and the number of fields that you have to harvest. And then also consider where and when all of those pieces, when each of those hops are in that ideal state for that. And then on top of that, you've got to layer in the idea that, you know, with especially with climate change, it's adding new variables in terms of when those things are going to be optimized, that certain things may be optimizing at different times than they may have in the past. And it creates like this incredibly difficult multivariate equation to try to compute so that you can put the right labor on the right fields at the right time, you know, to exactly optimize for all of those pieces. Uh, so now that I've set out this incredibly difficult uh, <laughs> equation, how do you guys solve for that? Um, that is, that is one of the uh, biggest equations to solve for during harp harvest right there. And so it's just about optimizing, like you said, where you're going to go. And so Certain situations like you can let alpha hang longer because a, the brewer isn't interested in aroma. They're just interested in alpha acids. Except for the early CTZ that yes. we did pick this year, oh. <laughs> which actually had some pretty good aromas, which was an influence from Alex. So yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> early CTZ. Who uses that? <laughs> uh, more people should. <laughs> sure, sure. But, you know, so you can, you can adjust that around a little bit, you know, and so if you have a balance of some alpha acreage, you'll let the alpha acreage go, do your thing, and then, and then you can more choose for aroma uh, by variety. And then we all lay out, typically we try and lay out a good um, window of, of, of different varieties to hit the right uh, spectrum. And so, 
in many varieties, there is a range of brewers who like it early and like it late. And so you have no, it's okay to pick it over 14 days or 10 days or 12 days. And other varieties, like Alex said, it's more narrow. So you have to almost just make a game plan, um, you know, and, and then Mother Nature changes the game plan a little bit always and rain events, mites, some of these kind of things. And so there, um, so there isn't, there isn't, um, there isn't a set equation. You just have to look at it kind of, you kind of set a schedule and then you start following it and you look what's happening in the field minute to minute, day to day, and then you adjust it, uh, accordingly. So, you know, we make adjustments here almost every day. We're thinking, you know, like as Claire alluded to, she, she runs the fresh hop program here so she can allude to some of the challenges of yeah, what we throw her through. Yeah. I mean, you start off with a schedule and with an idea of what you would prefer to pick and when to pick it. But I mean, at the end of the day, we pick it when it's ready. And that requires a lot of attention to detail. That requires Eric Reed and Alex going out to each field all the time, you know, pulling cones down and doing sensory on them. And then also understanding like what Eric, my dad was saying is, you know, there's a spectrum of aromas within each varieties. And so we do have customers who really do like the lemon early centennial, but then we also have those who like the deep red fruit cherry. And so you can pick some of that earlier stuff when it's ready, when it's that aroma, but also leaving some fields to hang a little bit longer. So you're really fine tuning, you know, what your customers want and taking that into consideration. Is it primarily sensorially based when you make these decisions? I know there are, you know, there are different modes. There are some growers who are very superstitious and they pick on the same day for that same mm-hmm. variety every year. And then there are some growers who are, you know, very science-based and they are, you know, running those through more sophisticated, like, you know, uh, GC mass spec and doing full rundowns to make those kinds of picking decisions. And then there are those that are also, you know, just making, you know, pulling it and doing, you know, sensory themselves, you know, of course now within that, you also have like the the plants themselves are complex. You know, there's differences on the plant from the bottom of the plant to the top of the plant, from one side of the field to another side of the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and and so how do you start making those kinds of sensory or, you know, kind of pick decisions with all of, you know, you know, build the data to, to kind of make the final call on that? Well, the very first thing you have to do is identify your customer and what they want. So, you know, whoever you're selling to, and if you're selling, you know, some some buyers of certain varieties of hops have an actual hard picking window they want you in, and you have to be in that window. And it doesn't it's not it doesn't matter what you think the aroma is. <laughs> sure, you sure. got to be in that window, and, okay. that, and that's okay. Right. That's one right. that's one methodology. But for us, it starts on the customer base right off the bat, and so we try and understand what each customer can handle and can use. And then, and then we kind of, as Claire said, we kind of build from there to, to get it where it, to get it where it needs to be the problem. <clears throat> so being date specific, we're not really comfortable with date specific because we're, what we're seeing now is much more weather variation and the ripening curve is not like what it used to be. So being like date driven looks to not be a really good spot for us. So we do not like that. On the other side of the spectrum, and I have an immense amount of respect for the companies that are doing this and with the GCs, and I think they do a really nice job, but the lag time to, is too great, and it's not fast enough, and it's, it's very, still very expensive at this point. 
Sure, so, sure. so the problem is, is while we, that has a lot of good data and I, I do think it's well done. And like I said, I have immense respect for the people that are doing it. It's, it's, it's not going to be fast enough. And so for us, what is fast enough is in-house we've taught ourselves this. And so we can literally go to the field and spend five minutes there and know whether this is going to work or not. And then we move from there. So that's how we internally do it. So how many, you know, if you're going out and evaluating a field, like, how, you know, how many different spots do you, do you pull from to, you know, kind of make some decisions around? I mean, what, what does it look like when you do that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we have well over a hundred hop yards, you know, sure. and we're like, if you go wingtip to wingtip, you know, at our farm, it's like 37 miles. And so you have to spend a lot of time <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, driving sure. and, and so, uh, and so, you know, typically, you know, the parts of the field that will, yeah. you know, you know where to go in the field after enough amount of years to get kind of a representative sample. So you go I noticed that today, like you, you, there were just spots that you, you knew kind of like midfield and then deep. Yeah. You just had to take us to certain spots where, you know, there was going to be some, some interesting plants because, mm-hmm. you know, again, you spend enough time in these fields and you just, you kind of, yep. you kind of learn where the where that kind of average or, you know, something representative might be. I mean, we work hard to blend science and art here. So I don't, I don't want to undo the science side of it. It's just, the science is great. It's just too slow still. And to be at the speed that we need right, right yet. And so, you know, as, as, as sampling gets quicker and the results can get turned around quicker, which I'm sure will happen. And, X amount of years, we can probably get more to a, a rote-based scientific model. But a little bit of science and a lot of art is what gets us kind of to the fast spot quickly. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the harvest this year, what you all are seeing. Obviously, you have a bunch of varieties um, and things are, are all moving in a whole bunch of directions right now. I think it'd be interesting to, to kind of talk about some of those dynamics. I know that in talking to, a, you know, a bunch of hop growers so far on this trip, you know, it's a, it's a difficult year, you know, that, uh, you know, that we've seen some, we're, we're seeing lower yields and there's going to be some impacts, you know, some, probably some bigger impacts for the world of craft beer. Let's talk a little bit about that. But before that, uh, with 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions, and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From one half barrel to 30 barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or you just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com slash cbbpod to get started. Also, as Craft Beer's most trusted point-of-sale system arrived as the mobile all-in-one solution, you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Plus, they're offering a special deal to CBB podcast listeners Get 25% off all hardware. To redeem, you must launch with Arrived before December 1st, 2022. Go to Arrived.com slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's Arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in Arrived. So what's Harvest look like this year for you all? Uh, You know, again, 
the the weather in Yakima in the Pacific Northwest in general. It's not just Yakima. Idaho apparently has also um, experienced some really difficult growing conditions this year too. Um, you know, but it is having some impact on what you're seeing. Talk to me from your perspective about what you all what you all are seeing from this harvest. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a good way you know to sum it up is we're you know. We, all of us have collectively gotten pretty good at judging the crop a little bit before we harvest it. And very rarely do we get fooled. And I would say this year fooled a lot of people. Really? Yeah. Because it looked really good going in. Um, we've had really 24 months of some crazy weather. And I actually, my own personal opinion is I think we had a huge heat cycle last year in June. And so I think that actually had some impacts on the plant coming into this year. Now in hindsight, we had a historically cold uh, spring and early summer and wet here, uh, like record breaking. And then we had an incredible heat spell again in mid-August here. So it's a very hot weather during hop harvest, which normally it cools off pretty well. So you kind of throw all that together and it's now in hindsight, not crazy to see that, um, see that the crop is down. I don't think craft brewers have to fear that there's not going to be enough hops, but um, it certainly made the situation tighter in some varieties, not all varieties, some varieties will be tighter. And, and I also think it's, it's, it looked like the aroma spectrum was developing on its normal pattern. And it feels like that's gotten mucked up a little bit. I don't, I feel like a lot of it too, happen because there is that smaller crop that's been coming in. And Mm -hmm. so everyone's picking a lot faster. And so they're getting to varieties that, you know, they normally in the cycle that they would in their plan would get to in time, but they're not quite ripe yet. They're not quite mature. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's actually been a couple farms that shut down because they didn't feel like they could pick some of the fields that they had because they weren't quite mature. So it's not necessarily that some of the maturity is getting pushed out. It's it's that, mm-hmm. you know, we're picking faster. And so we're coming up upon these fields that, you know, normally they would be in the next cycle of picking and they're just not quite ready. And so that's been a little bit challenging for especially a lot of us in, you know, Moxie in the lower valley, just trying to navigate that in terms of maturity and harvest. In addition to that, too, though, we are seeing cones that are fully developed and they look great but maybe just lack a little bit. And this isn't all varieties. Sure, sure. But we, we have seen some delayed maturity of stuff that mm-hmm. you would expect to have been ready to go and hoping that they get there because it, it is cooling off now finally weather-wise. But yeah, we've seen these really beautiful developed cones with tons of lupulin and have the right sort of feel in terms of the moisture of the cone itself. And you rub them and you smell them and you're like kind of looking for more. So we still have a few weeks left. So I think that it's not all is lost and those, those hops will continue to mature. But I think that's been one of the more surprising things throughout this harvest. Another another thing too, is if the, it feels like the crop is 10 to 15% below expectation. And so that's 10 to 15% less lots that are available for brewers to select. And so if you think of it, if you have a thousand centennial lots, and this year you only have 850 as an industry, it's, you have the same amount of brewers trying to buy the same amount of hops. And, and so they're, they're, that range just got narrowed. And I think that's another thing we're seeing is that the smaller crop has, has, has just made 
the amount of selection be narrower in many varieties. So, sure, and it, you know, certainly as we were looking at you know early season planting numbers from the USDA, you know, there were those critics out there like, why on earth is there an additional you know X number of acres being planted? in the current market for craft beer, you know, where some of these, you know, nope, there was some, how do we understand this? And if, and I think now that we get through this kind of harvest and see that, you know, whether it's 10 or 15% or, you know, some other growers have mentioned 20%, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to me, even as far as 25% on some of the, the you know, worst down case impact, you know, that's a very significant impact to the industry as a whole and certainly suggests that uh yeah and and honestly i was just trying to be moderate (laughs) (laughs) so uh, we've seen some 25 percenters and on the varieties that a lot of those shifts in acreage were happening from one variety to another and we're feeling it in the variety that we don't really want to feel it in which is centennial Mm -hmm. right there was a lot of new baby centennial planted this year when that's something we really needed and it's it was definitely down yeah, I mean, I, I wrote an article earlier this year that talked about the switching varieties and some of that acreage shifting over from proprietary into the public space and how underplanted some of those public varieties like Centennial and Cascade were. And, you know, Centennial is down this year and it already was short in the market. And so it's only going to make it slightly worse than what it was. And it's just going to make the situation a little bit more difficult maybe to find some Centennial. But I mean, it's it's not great, but, you know, there's other varieties that are doing, you know, moderately well, and there's still plenty of those. And uh, we talk about old crop years, you know, if they're stored really well, then, you know, brewers can still use those as long as, you know, they have some historical information about, you know, where they're kept and as long as they're stored properly, then they can use them. But, you know, there was that decline in acreage in those public varieties and then seeing some of the yields a little bit lower this year definitely doesn't help. If you are a subscriber to the Brewing Industry Guide, you can go read the story that Claire wrote uh, for that issue. Um, Go check out those archives. It's definitely worth a good read. But let's talk about that. I mean, we did mention, I mean, you know, over the last 15 years, I mean, most of these fields have been turning over. Um, You know, there's also other impacts that happen within the world of, of hop growing where fields grow tired after a certain number of years. Um, you know, they need to, you know, either the soil needs to be refreshed or the plants themselves, uh, you know, that can take on uh, virus and, you know, then decline in production and quality, you know, so you all are constantly having to, you know, update and turn some of these things over, uh, grow new varieties and all of that, you know, as we saw, there's some baby plants out there now where they're not producing cones in a significant way that can be harvested in a first year. And those are costs that you all have sunk in that. Talk to me a little bit about that process of, uh, you know, constantly evaluating what you're, what you have, the yields that that's producing, the quality of that, that that's producing, you know, and then the cost and, uh, you know, kind of process that's involved in, changing that over to either a refreshed rootstock of new plant, you know, or into a whole new variety. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly challenging for growers to be able to switch a field over to a different variety. I mean, previously, you know, a field could go five to eight years with the same variety. And now we're seeing it, you know, even in one year, a variety can change over with the average being one year, one year. Yeah. So there could be a one-year planting, and if there's not a contract in place or there's no demand, then it's not it's not going to stay in the ground because it's not, you know, worth it for the grower to have planted. 
And so the cycle and the lifespan of the fields is becoming a lot shorter and a lot, you know, less time. And it's incredibly expensive to switch over. It can be anywhere from the growers that I talk to. It, it differs, you know, where you are and, you know, the type of farm that you have. But it can be anywhere between eight and $12,000 an acre. And that's a significant amount when you're, you know, constantly every th- two to three years changing over that variety. And then also just trying to keep up, you know, if you even planted the correct variety for the next year. And so when I was talking to growers, you know, they're really leaning on contracts to be able to, you know, keep that variety in the ground. And that's something as growers that we can use as protection for us and to, you know, secure that variety for the next couple of years. But it is incredibly challenging for us to, to have to switch it over every year or every two, three years. Eric, how did that look uh, in the older days? You know, what was that like in the 90s? How, you know, how long would a, a field last then? Yeah, the <clears throat> the um, cycle time in the 90s was way less. And so obviously, um, yeah, versus now. And But I think some of that, I will say, I'll, I will give a little hindsight. I look back in my 1990s hop growing career. And I think at a certain point of field age out to a point where you no matter how well you do you can't quite you can't get it back up into the top 25 percent of yield i think at that point it's completely you know i think it makes an economic there's an economic advantage to replacing it um but you know what's happened um there's like claire indicated there's two things one the market the market is punishing you if you are growing a variety that has fallen off in demand and, and there was, and the cycle time on new varieties, the fail time, I call the fail time is much faster. And so like Claire indicated, we had new varieties we planted last year, didn't see them go boom out. They came this year. So that's a big change there. And then I would also say that aroma hops, this is in general, not, not a, not a statement you could say to every variety, every aroma variety, but aroma hops in general tend to be less vigorous than alpha hops. And so, uh, there's now that the bulk of the industry is aroma varieties, the viroids and viruses seem to be having much more impact on them than they ever did. And, and so we're seeing a variety like Cascade, who that was a staple variety here for decades. I mean, 50 years it's been here and it is so susceptible to viroid right now. And it, it can, if it gets it in the field, it'll take the field down two, three years. And we never saw that before. And so I would say the other problem is a lot of these varieties, for whatever reason, just have very little ability to withstand viroids in, a, in any kind of meaningful way. And so just from that, you can see yields, <clears throat> if yields drop 10%, we can live with that for a while. But if they drop 30%, then you have to switch. So between, you know, uh, brewer demand, which I would always equate to consumer demand, because we've got to remember the consumer is the one who's driving the flavors and wants these things. So we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that, you know, we're not doing that. So, I mean, so you have to, you have to, you have to meet that demand for new varieties and change. You have to figure out which new varieties to go in. And, and then you also have to deal with all these varieties that seem to have 
be much more susceptible to viruses and viroids than what we had before. So, sure. Well, how do you guys do that? I mean, you know, now you've got there's new varieties. We were in the field with uh, you know Vista, which is a new public variety. Beautiful cones. You know, they they smell fantastic. Alex, I think you described them as underripe cantaloupe right now. Um, you know, there are other public varieties like Triumph. You know, some of these things they don't necessarily have a buying you know, customer, when you put them in the field, people need to see them and they need to be able to rub them and they need to be able to smell and then eventually taste them in order to make some decisions around these things. And that means you're growing them, not necessarily with a contract in place to sell them. You know, what does that process look like? And, you know, I mean, obviously there's risk on the, on the farm's part to go do that because, you know, there's an opportunity cost. That's something you aren't putting in the ground that you've got sold already. Yeah, uh, one thing that I at, here at CLS that we've done is we've actually decreased the amount of acres per variety. So Vista only has about six acres, six or seven here. And that's something that I found also at some of the other farms when I was talking to them, Diane Gooding, for example, she has a couple different test plots too that, you know, the acreage of those individual varieties is a lot smaller. So maybe, you know, a couple of years ago, we would put in 15, 20 acres of a variety that was new because it was fun. It was new and exciting. And, you know, we figured brewers would be putting, they would have demand for it. And so what we found is with this constant fail factor that's coming into play, we needed to decrease the amount of acreage and, you know, only put in five, six acres. So it's a small amount of pounds that we can manage if it's uncontracted and it's not a big deal. So that's kind of one way that we've been able to, manage that issue a little bit it's just the smaller acreage and we have a couple different fields where we've done you know four or five six acres of five or six varieties to kind of mitigate that and i always try to do this mental shorthand when you say acres because i can calculate that i know you know hop growers think about it in bales like you know bales per acre with 10 what right being this kind mm-hmm. of standard two thousand pounds mm-hmm. you know 10 bales per acre and that becomes a shorthand and so if you do more it's exciting. And if you do less, it's, you know, uh, you know, and so, you know, five acres is what, 10,000 pounds of, mm-hmm. uh, of a hop, you know, yeah. plus or minus depending yeah. on the variety. Yeah. Vista, for example, is pretty, I mean, if you go out into the field, the cones are super large, it's a really vigorous variety. And so that one is an example of one that might do a little bit better than, you know, some of the other babies that are here in Yakima. Yeah. And 10,000 pounds, we can, 10,000 pounds of something new. We, if we can't hustle up that sale, yeah. then, <laughs> yeah. then, then we need to go do something else. So, so that, that's sized about right. So I, I 10,000 pounds seems like a good number to, to, you know, to hit on. So that's a, a risk that you can take at that point. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, I mean, there's alpha, you can get those hops extracted and put into alpha and go that route, which is, a whole different metric. So there are ways to escape out of it. But I think I will say lots of newer varieties have taken huge steps backwards in acreage. Sabro, uh, Idaho 7, Eldorado, even our varieties had to, you know, there was a lot of speculation that got in those chains and and they've all had, so varieties, and I'm not talking just Vista, the new ones, even some pretty well-established aroma varieties have had to come down in acreage pretty significantly. And so there's just a, there's just a different, there's just a, there's just a, there's just a cycle now 
And what I would say is growers and dealers were willing to get a little speculative in a hot market to make sure brewers had enough Sabro or Idaho 7 or El Dorado, let's say. And that's a change that's going to happen. That speculation is going to come down. And so one of the takeaways I would give brewers is, is if you do have a new variety that you love, I would very much focus on contracting it because everybody is taking all that down. Uh, growers and dealers alike <clears throat> are taking those acreages down to something they can manage in case it all blows up on them. So how does that communication chain work then? You know, it, it's a difficult and kind of sophisticated, you know, system of sales where, you know, sometimes you are, you're selling out through brokers that are then writing their own contracts on that and, you know, passing those things along, you know, but communicating on where the demand is and where things need to go, you know, across, a lot of different growers that are all, you know, competing to, to grow this. Like, I mean, it's a pretty sophisticated system to try to understand, you know, uh, you know, to make a decision from how do you go about doing that? I mean, one way that we've is harvest when brewers actually, you know, come out to the farm and we do these informal gatherings here in our selection room and in our beer garden, just having conversations that are natural and organic and they express you know, their interest in some of the varieties. And I think a lot of that was lost in 2020, especially when there were no, almost virtually no brewers coming through. And that kind of what Alex was talking about, you know, that feedback loop, which is so important, not just for harvest dates and pick dates, but also for, you know, what are they wanting to brew with? What are they liking? And so that's one way that, um, you know, brewers can kind of advocate for those varieties is if they, if they're able to, to come, to harvest and actually talk with the growers directly and kind of, you know, get their, get their ideas out there and help us understand better about what they want. But it is, it is really primarily through contracting. That's how you communicate your need right. as a brewer Put your to money your where dealer your mouth is. and yeah. to the grower. And that's <laughs> right, how the right. dealers know what they're buying from the growers. And it all really starts with the brewers. And just to kind of touch a little bit more on 2020, throwing things for a pretty massive loop, we saw a lot of growth in certain parts of a lot of breweries operations in 2020, especially with beers that were selling packaging grocery stores. I mean, we saw July 4th. So if you're not familiar, the 4th of July is the single largest beer holiday of the year. Biggest sales you'll ever see. We saw July 4th numbers sustained for months in 2020 because so many people were buying beer in the grocery store and taking it home. Let's go to 2021 where you're looking at year over year numbers and you're not coming close to that. So it becomes difficult when the situation is way more complex than it ever has been because you can't properly forecast your sales, which means you can't properly forecast production, which means you don't really have a good idea of what you need hop-wise as well. So a lot of shooting in the dark. There's a lot of risk that happens on a lot of levels, but you know, just doing the best you can and communicating your raw material needs. And that's the most beneficial way to deliver a message to the grower on what you need. <laughs> Sure. And what they should be growing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Let's talk about um, hop selection for a little bit. Uh, you know, you talk about brewers coming here and, and experiencing this, uh, you know, from the perspective of a farm and pers a perspective of a hop grower, um, what are some of the frameworks and maybe, you know, tips and ways that brewers should approach, you know, from a sensory and you know, otherwise perspective coming into the process of selecting hops? So, I mean, it's all recipe based, right? 
you know what you're looking for profile wise. Obviously, it comes down to personal preference as a brewer on the variety. But having an idea of what you're looking for coming into it um, for a true to type centennial and mosaic or whatever, for what that means to you as a brewer. For, for the years that I was um, running three weavers in terms of the recipes and the raw ingredient supply chain, I would try and match as closely as I could to previous year crops. But sometimes if I get like a certain selection of variety in front of me and it just wows me, I don't care what last year smelled like. <laughs> sure, like sure. I just want that variety. I want that hop. I want that selection. Uh, but it's you, you tend to come off as a little bit demanding to your dealers with selection or even to the growers. But I think that there's nothing wrong with that um, when it comes down to it. No matter how big or small your contracts are, that's your hop going into your beer for an entire year. So it's okay to be demanding about things. But having an idea of what that looks like going in so you're not flailing at the selection table is a pretty good start. Uh, we did a lot of, so when Three Weavers was part of Canarchy, it was a ton of group selection because we had so many breweries having a say in this single supply chain of our varieties for the year. And it took a lot of conversations with each other. What are we looking for? Where do we compromise? And then especially in years where aromas may not necessarily be where you want them to be on certain varieties, where to compromise on it. Like knowing that hops are an agricultural product, they change from year to year. You can have like the unicorn in your mind of where you want to go, but if it doesn't happen that year, it's a plant. You can't be disappointed about it. You kind of have to course correct and move forward with it. But yeah, I guess the best thing is know what you're looking for. And if something really blows your mind outside of that, go with it. Um, but have a little bit of preparation for selection. How do you communicate that within a, a team? Because, you know, oftentimes, right, as you mentioned, you're, there's multiple brewers coming together. Uh, it's interesting. I always love to understand how brewers build a sensory language that they can communicate to each other. I think that I was fortunate especially with Canarchy and the breweries, because a lot of us were like-minded in what we were looking for in certain varieties. Certain situations, though, one brewery, if we had a totally divergent idea of what we were looking for, and let's say Eldorado is a really good example, um, chances are we would just have to maybe get two different selections or get one brewery's Eldorado from one dealer, one brewery's from another, or compromise. Uh, but we had a really robust sensory program at Three Weavers and throughout Canarchy, and so when it came down to it, it was understanding baselines for each beer and you move from there. But that's for larger production environments. You know, I envy the small brewers that can just brew whatever they want and they don't brew the same recipe all the time and they can just go and get what they like when sure, they like it. Sure. <laughs> Are there any, uh, you know, kind of common mistakes that you, you know, for, as a brewer also see brewers making as they go through this or, you know, some uh, behaviors and practices that are particularly beneficial? Um, I'd say the biggest mistake is being tied to a single farm when it comes to selecting with dealers. I've seen people have an idea of this variety that's grown at farm A and they believe year after year this is what they want. So they only ask for farm A when really they're, you know, overlooking B and C and D and E and just you can keep going on and on. And so being open to looking at hops uh, grown in different regions as well. Like just because you are buying something from Oregon year after year doesn't mean you shouldn't overlook that same variety in Washington or in Idaho or even Michigan because Tawar is a real thing within hops. So don't. Yes, it is. Yes. As our podcast with Tom Shellhammer, uh, you know, recently showed. <laughs> yeah. And, and it can change throughout yeah. the valley even. Yeah, right. Yeah. And from here to the other side of Moxie, it can change. So it, and weather in any particular absolutely. year. Absolutely. The impact. soil, the microclimates yeah, yeah. that exist throughout the regions. Absolutely. 
So just be open-minded and look at hops from everywhere. And just to also get an idea of what's out there. It may not be what you like, but you should at least see what's going on. And I guess maybe the biggest piece of advice is that level of communication. So when you are rubbing your hops, give sensory feedback because that comes back to the grower, right? You you want to be honest and open about what you're smelling, what you're rubbing at the selection table because it does come back. And that just gives the grower an idea of, let's use Chinook as an example with CLS. I love really late Chinook. CLS has picked late Chinook for many years. We're talking like end of September. Brewers would rub it at certain dealers and they would love it but it wasn't what they were looking for in their beer. They preferred an earlier pick of Chinook and that will dictate to the farm when they should be picking that variety for delivery to those dealers. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, obviously you all developed Eldorado here at CLS. Let's talk about that, that process of developing a new hop um, and bringing a new hop to market. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's not terribly difficult to get new varieties and develop new hop varieties. I think the primary thing that's really challenging is to find aromas that resonate and then also marrying that with the proper marketing and the proper availability. And so I, there's lots and lots of new varieties that, that brewers will never see just because they, they have kind of a failure to launch a little bit. And so I think one of the unique things with El Dorado was, is it had an aroma spectrum that really wasn't out there yet you know and so um and so it 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 was a good fit it married well with citra and mosaic as well in a lot of beers and so and then but primarily it had an aroma you know uh, a spectrum that was that was that was desirable i will say it also takes time and that's a little bit disadvantage to right now to new varieties because because, you know, a new variety will come out, brewers get excited, they all want to put it in a one-off, you know, you feel as a variety developer, like, oh man, I got good demand going here. I'm feeling pretty good, you know, and, <laughs> and, but the problem is, is after they all do the one-offs, they, it takes them, it takes brewers four or five years to figure out how to work that variety into their core beers and their systems. And so varieties can have like a, like a, like a upswoop, uh, that can happen really quick. And if you're not careful, they, they can have a normal lagging, uh, thing as well. That doesn't mean it's dead. That just means it's getting time to develop. And then, and then, so like with Eldorado, we saw a swoop up, we saw a flat, we saw another big swoop up. We saw a flat, we saw a swoop up, and now we're a little flat again. So we're like, we've, had, we've been through this cycle like four times. And so some of it is consistently making a good product. Um, you know, we do things a little- Yeah, it's really fun when, you know, a group of brewers all make their special double dry hopped with this hop version right. of it. But that doesn't sustain a variety. That's a great single sale, but right. it's, you know, it's those consistent beers and those kind of core brands that brewers make over and over again that uh, yeah. that it's, actually sustain and, and support a hop for you all. It's yeah. the hazy little thing of the world, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. beers like that, which is an Eldorado beer as well, that not just with Eldorado specifically, but can make or break a variety's future. Yeah. Stone Delicious IPA was another one that anchored it really well. And, you know, you can go into any supermarket and kind of look at the beers on, you know, in, in the cold case there. And it's not, you know, probably 25 or 30% of them, you know, have Eldorado might not be the lead, but it's a base variety. And so we, 
we kind of wanted to really make El Dorado like a like a variety that brewers could just have in their staple. And you know, everybody's looking for that citra or that humongous home run, but you know, we really wanted Elder and Eldorado can be that variety as well, but we really wanted it to be um, you know, definitely in the pantry, so to speak. And it's it's achieved that in a pretty good way. I mean, so but you know, there's a massive stream of new varieties coming and hop varieties seem to have about a 20 year life cycle. And after about 20 years, they don't disappear, but their, their growth cycle is pretty much over, you know? So I think El Dorado, we feel really great about the penetration in the United States. Um, it still is very underutilized globally. And so I think that's kind of where the big focus will be, but, um, yeah, it's been really great and fun and, and, um, we're uh we also have zappa that we've worked on as well that's zappa is definitely a little more unique a little more polarizing it's a neo-mexicanist variety but we've learned through alex's help she's learned uh, and taught a lot of brewers how to uh how to and she's certainly taught us on how to use it in the beers and and uh so it's a whole different beast than el dorado so Stuff like that is, it just takes a lot. Of, it takes time for brewers to understand how to use it the right way. So. Sure, sure. Well, we're getting on in time here. Let's zoom out a little bit. What uh, what do you find keeps you up at night the most this year during this harvest? <laughs> and, you know, from the perspective of this year, this year's harvest, what are you the most excited about? Well, this harvest with the reduced yield, the, the you know, for me, the thing that it's hard to, it, it's very challenging from both a yield perspective, a volume perspective, and a uh, aroma perspective to keep all your buy, everybody happy. And when you have a down year, it's almost impossible to keep everybody happy. So, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that keeps me up is you, we do not like letting customers down. And it's very difficult to not let a few customers down in a year like this. Um, so definitely that's probably the immediate immediate thing you know that's weighing on me a little bit um but some of the things we're excited about is is we did we took a huge step in refreshing a lot of acreage on our farm we uh we have uh multiple new varieties that we're working with that are showing really really great promise and so you know i mean i think those kind of things are going to be really exciting and those investments we paid we made those big investments even though they didn't pay off this year i think will set us up for the future in well in a few different areas so alex and claire do you have any uh anything that keep you up at night there's a bar in downtown yakima called bruising cues <laughs> bruising cues and that's what keeps me up at night <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I will say uh, Fresh Hop keeps me up at night. Yeah. Um, I do the Fresh Hop program here, and I just want to make all the brewers happy and get them their Fresh Hops when they need them because I understand that in the market's a very, it's a very short time, and I want to get them the varieties that they need. So I think about Harvest States, and I'm constantly texting my dad and Reed, when are we picking El Dorado? When are we picking El Dorado? <laughs> And the 19th, the 19th, <laughs> we're going to pick a field on the 19th. Um, but yeah, that's tomorrow that is, Oh, that is tomorrow. Know, it's coming fast. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think, I think we're just excited, um, to have a lot more brewers back this year too. I think when I started, 
there it was 2020 and there were no brewers that came through and for me it's been really exciting to see more of the international folks coming through and just seeing some more of our customers who are coming back for in-person selection and just having that face-to-face time with brewers has been really exciting this year. Well, that sounds like a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Feel like a pro with Pro-Fill can fillers from ProBrew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Fermentus is now offering dry ale and lager yeast and flexible 100-gram packaging. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. And podcast listeners get 25% off hardware if you launch with Arrived before December 1st. As always, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you. You know, and of course, if you're in the industry, subscribe to our Brewing Industry Guide, and you can read stories like the one that Claire has written for our Brewing Industry Guide. Uh, we're trying to put some great content out there that helps you make better decisions as you run your brewing businesses and brew beer. Um, if people want to learn more about CLS, where do they find you all? They can find us on Instagram at CLS underscore farms. We're pretty active on there. And then we have our website, clsfarms.com. And then if there's any brewers who come through Harvest, they're more than welcome to come out to the farm, have a beer, get some tours. We'd love to see them. They can DM us on Instagram or email me at claire at clsfarms.com. Cool. Claire, Alex, Eric, thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.